Section 44 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain Volume 5, Chapter 42 Letters of 1903 To Various Persons Hard Days at Riverdale Last Summer at Elmira The Return to Italy The reader may perhaps recall that H. H. Rogers, some five or six years earlier, had taken charge of the fortunes of Helen Keller, making it possible for her to complete her education. Helen had now written her first book, a wonderful book, The Story of My Life, and it had been successfully published. For a later generation it may be proper to explain that the Miss Sullivan, later Mrs. Macy, mentioned in the letter which follows, was the noble woman who had devoted her life to the enlightenment of this blind, dumb girl, had made it possible for her to speak and understand, and, indeed, to see with the eyes of luminous imagination. The case of plagiarism mentioned in this letter is not now remembered, and does not matter, but it furnished a text for Mark Twain, whose remarks on the subject in general are eminently worth while. To Helen Keller in Wrentham, Massachusetts, Riverdale on the Hudson, St. Patrick's Day, Art Three. Dear Helen, I must steal half a moment from my work to say how glad I am to have your book, and how highly I value it, both for its own sake and as a remembrance of an affectionate friendship which has subsisted between us for nine years without a break, and without a single act of violence that I can call to mind. I suppose there is nothing like it in heaven, and not likely to be, until we get there and show off. I often think of it with longing, and how they'll say, There they come, sit down in front. I am practicing with a tin halo. You do the same. I was at Henry Rogers last night, and of course we talked to you. He is not at all well. You will not like to hear that, but like you and me, he is just as lovely as ever. I am charmed with your book. Enchanted. You are a wonderful creature, the most wonderful in the world, you and your other half together, Miss Sullivan, I mean, for it took the pair you to make a complete and perfect whole. How she stands out in her letters, her brilliancy, penetration, originality, wisdom, character, and the fine literary competencies of her pen, they are all there. Oh, dear me! How unspeakably funny and owlishly idiotic and grotesque was that plagiarism farce, as if there was much of anything in any human utterance, oral or written, except plagiarism. The kernel, the soul, let us go further and say the substance, the bulk, the actual and valuable material of all human utterances is plagiarism. For substantially all ideas are second-hand, 
consciously and unconsciously drawn from a million outside sources and daily used by the garnerer with a pride and satisfaction born of the superstition that he originated them whereas there is not a rag of originality about them anywhere except the little discoloration they get from his mental and moral caliber and his temperament and which is revealed in characteristics of phrasing when a great orator makes a great speech you are listening to ten centuries and ten thousand men but we call it his speech and really some exceedingly small portion of it is his but not enough to signify it is merely a waterloo it is wellington's battle in some degree and we call it his but there are others that contributed it takes a thousand men to invent a telegraph or a steam engine or a phonograph or a photograph or a telephone or any other important thing and the last man gets the credit and we forget the others he added his little mite that is all he did these object lessons should teach us that ninety-nine parts of all things that proceed from the intellect are plagiarisms pure and simple and the lesson ought to make us modest but nothing can do that then why don't we unwittingly reproduce the phrasing of a story as well as the story itself it can hardly happen to the extent of fifty words except in the case of a child its memory tablet is not lumbered with impressions and the actual language can have graving room there and preserve the language a year or two but a grown person's memory tablet is a palimpsest with hardly a bare space upon which to engrave a phrase it must be a very rare thing that a whole page gets so sharply printed upon a man's mind by a single reading that it will stay long enough to turn up some time or other and be mistaken by him for his own no doubt we are constantly littering our literature with disconnected sentences borrowed from books at some unremembered time and now imagined to be our own but that is about the most we can do in eighteen sixty six i read dr holmes poems in the sandwich islands a year and a half later i stole his dictation without knowing it and used it to dedicate my innocence abroad with then years afterwards i was talking with dr holmes about it he was not an ignorant ass no not he he was not a collection of decayed human turnips like your plagiarism court and so when i said i know now where i stole it but whom did you steal it from he said i don't remember i only know i stole it from somebody because i've never originated anything altogether myself nor met anybody who had to think of those solemn donkeys breaking a little child's heart with their ignorant rubbish about plagiarism i couldn't sleep for blaspheming about it last night why their whole lives their whole histories all their learning all their thoughts all their opinions were one solid ruck of plagiarism and they didn't know it and never suspected it a gang of dull and hoary pirates piously setting themselves the task of disciplining and purifying a kitten that they think they've caught filching a chop oh damn but you finish it dear i am running short of vocabulary today 
ever lovingly your friend mark edited and modified by clara clemens deputy to her mother who for more than seven months has been ill in bed and unable to exercise her official function the burden of the clemens household had fallen almost entirely upon clara clemens in addition to supervising its customary affairs she also shouldered the responsibility of an unusual combination of misfortunes for besides the critical condition of her mother her sister jean clemens was down with pneumonia no word of which must come to mrs clemens certainly it was a difficult position in some account of it which he set down later clemens wrote it was fortunate for us all that clare's reputation for truthfulness was so well established in her mother's mind it was our daily protection from disaster the mother never doubted clara's word clara could tell her large improbabilities without exciting any suspicion whereas if i tried to market even a small and simple one the case would have been different i was never able to get a reputation like clara's the accumulation of physical ailments in the clemens home had somewhat modified mark twain's notion of medical practice he was no longer radical he had become eclectic it is a good deal of a concession that he makes to twitchell after those earlier letters from sweden in which osteopathy had been heralded as the anodyne for all human ills to rev j h twitchell in hartford dear joe livy does really make a little progress these past three or four days progress which is visible to even the untrained eye the physicians are doing good work with her but my notion is that no art of healing is the best for all ills i should distribute the ailments around surgery cases to the surgeons lupus to the actinic ray specialist nervous prostration to the christian scientist most ills to the allopath and the homeopath in my own particular case rheumatism gout and bronchial attacks to the osteopathist mr rogers was to sail south with this morning and here's this weather i'm sorry i think it's a question if he gets away tomorrow yours ever mark it was through j y m mcallister to whom the next letter is written that mark twain had become associated with the plasmon company which explains the reference to shares he had seen much of mcallister during the winter at tedworth square and had grown fond of him it is a characteristic letter and one of interesting fact to j y m mcallister in london riverdale new york april seven ought three dear mcallister yours arrived last night and god knows i was glad to get it for i was afraid i'd blundered into an offence in some way and forfeited your friendship a kind of blunder i've made so many times in my life that i am always standing in a waiting and morbid dread of its occurrence three days ago i was in condition during one horribly long night to sympathetically roast with you in your hell of troubles during that night i was back again where i was in the black days when i was buried under a mountain of debt 
I called the daughters to me in private counsel and paralyzed them with the announcement, our outgo has increased in the past eight months until our expenses are now 125% greater than our income. It was a mistake. When I came down in the morning a gray and aged wreck and went over the figures again, I found that in some unaccountable way, unaccountable to a businessman but not to me, I had multiplied the totals by two. By God, I dropped seventy-five years on the floor where I stood. Do you know it affected me as one is affected when he wakes out of a hideous dream and finds that it was only a dream? It was a great comfort and satisfaction to me to call the daughters to a private meeting of the board again and say, You need not worry any more. Our outgo is only a third more than our income. In a few months, your mother will be out of her bed and on her feet again. Then we shall drop back to normal and be all right. Suddenly, there is a blistering and awful reality about a well-arranged unreality. It is quite within the possibilities that two or three nights like that night of mine could drive a man to suicide. He would refuse to examine the figures. They would revolt him so, and he could go to his death unaware that there was nothing serious about him. I cannot get that night out of my head. It was so vivid, so real, so ghastly. In any other year of these thirty-three, the relief would have been simple. Go where you can cut your cloth to fit your income. You can't do that when your wife can't be moved, even from one room to the next. Clam spells the trained nurse afternoons. I'm allowed to see Mrs. Clemens twenty minutes twice a day and write her two letters a day provided I put no news in them. No other person ever sees her except the physician and now and then a nerve specialist from New York. She saw there was something the matter that morning, but she got no facts out of me. But that is nothing. She hasn't had anything but lies for eight months. A fact would give her a relapse. The doctor and a specialist met in conspiracy five days ago, and in their belief she will by and by come out of this, as good as new, substantially. They ordered her to Italy for next winter, which seems to indicate that by autumn she will be able to undertake the voyage. So, Clara is writing a Florence friend to take a look round among the villas for us in the regions near that city. It seems early to do this, but John Bergheim thought it would be wise. He and his wife lunched with us here yesterday. They have been abroad in Havana four months, and they sailed for England this morning. I am enclosing an order for half of my, your, founder's shares. You are not to refuse them this time, though you have done it twice before. They are yours, not mine, and for your family's sake, if not your own, you cannot in these cloudy days renounce this property, which is so clearly yours and theirs. You have been generous long enough. Be just now to yourself. Mr. Rogers is off yachting for five or six weeks. I'll get them when he returns. The head of the house joins me in warmest greetings and remembrances to you and Mrs. McAllister. Ever yours, Mark. May 8. 
Great Scott! I never mailed this letter. I addressed it, put registered on it, then left it lying unsealed on the arm of my chair and rushed up to my bed quaking with a chill. I've never been out of the bed since. Oh, bronchitis, rheumatism, two sets of teeth aching. Land, I've had a dandy time for four weeks. And today, great guns, one of the very worst. I'm devilish sorry, and I do apologize, for although I'm not as slow as you are about answering letters, as a rule, I see where I'm standing this time. Two weeks ago, Jean was taken down again, this time with measles, and I haven't been able to go to her, and she hasn't been able to come to me. But Mrs. Clemens is making nice progress, and can stand alone a moment or two at a time. Now I'll post this. Mark. The two letters that follow, though written only a few days apart, were separated in their arrival by a period of seven years. The second letter was, in some way, mislaid and not mailed, and it was not until after the writer of it was dead that it was found and forwarded. Mark Twain could never get up much enthusiasm for the writings of Scott. His praise of Quentin Durward is about the only approval he ever accorded to the works of the great romanticist. To Branda Matthews in New York, New York City, May 4, Art 3. Dear Branda, I haven't been out of my bed for four weeks, but, well, I have been reading a good deal and it occurs to me to ask you to sit down some time or other when you have eight or nine months to spare and jot me down a certain few literary particulars for my help and evaluation. Your time need not be thrown away, for at your further leisure you can make Columbian lectures out of the results and do your students a good turn. 1. Are there, in Sir Walter's novels, passages done in good English? English which is neither slovenly or involved. 2. Are there passages whose English is not poor and thin and commonplace, but is of a quality above that? 3. Are there passages which burn with real fire, not punk, fox fire, make-believe? 4. Has he heroes and heroines who are not cads and cadesses? 5. Has he personages whose acts and talk correspond with their characters as described by him? 6. Has he heroes and heroines whom the reader admires, admires, and knows why? 7. Has he funny characters that are funny? and humorous passages that are humorous? 8. Does he ever chain the reader's interest and make him reluctant to lay the book down? 9. Are there pages where he ceases from posing, ceases from admiring the placid flood and flow of his own delusions, ceases from being artificial, and is for a time, long or short, recognizably sincere and in earnest. 10. Did he know how to write English, and didn't do it because he didn't want to? 
11. Did he use the right word only when he couldn't think of another one? Or did he run so much to wrong because he didn't know the right one when he saw it? 13. Can you read him and keep your respect for him? Of course a person could in his day, an era of sentimentality and sloppy romantics. But land, can a body do it today? Branda, I lie here dying, slowly dying, under the blight of Sir Walter. I have read the first volume of Rob Roy and as far as chapter 19 of Guy Mannering, and I can no longer hold my head up nor take my nourishment. Lord, it's all so juvenile, so artificial, so shoddy, and such wax figures and skeletons and specters. Interest? Why, it is impossible to feel an interest in these bloodless shams, these milk-and-water humbugs, and oh, the poverty of the invention. Not poverty in inventing situations, but poverty in furnishing reasons for them. Sir Walter usually gives himself away when he arranges for a situation, elaborates and elaborates and elaborates, till if you live to get to it, you don't believe in it when it happens. I can't find the rest of Rob Roy. I can't stand any more mannering. I do not know just what to do, but I will reflect, and not quit this great study rashly. He was great in his day, and to his proper audience, and so was God in Jewish times, for that matter, but why should either of them rank high now? And do they? Honest now, do they? Damned if I believe it. My, I wish I could see you and Lee Hunt. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. To Branda Matthews in New York, Riverdale, May 8, Art 3, Mail, June 1910. Dear Branda, I'm still in bed, but the days have lost their dullness since I broke into Sir Walter and lost my temper. I finished Guy Mannering, that curious, curious book, with its mob of squalid shatters jabbering around a single flesh-and-blood being, Denmark. A book crazily put together out of the very refuse of the romance artist's stage properties. Finished it and took up Quentin Durwood, and finished that. It was like leaving the dead to mingle with the living. It was like withdrawing from the infant class in the College of Journalism to sit under the lectures in English literature in Columbia University. I wonder who wrote Quentin Durwood. Yours ever, Mark. In 1903, preparations were going on for a great World's Fair to be held in St. Louis, and among other features proposed was a World's Literary Convention, with a week to be set apart in honor of Mark Twain, and a special Mark Twain Day in it, on which the National Association would hold grand services in honor of the distinguished Missourian. A letter asking his consent to the plan brought the following reply. To T. F. Gatz of Missouri, New York, May 30, 1903. Dear Mr. Gatz, It is indeed a high compliment which you offer me in naming an association after me, 
and in proposing the setting apart of a Mark Twain day at the great St. Louis Fair. But such compliments are not proper for the living. They are proper and safe for the dead only. I value the impulse which moves you to tender me these honors. I value it as highly as anyone can, and am grateful for it. But I should stand in a sort of terror of the honors themselves. So long as we remain alive, we are not safe from doing things which, however righteously and honorably intended, can wreck our repute and extinguish our friendships. I hope that no society will be named for me while I am still alive, for I might at some time or other do something which would cause its members to regret having done me that honor. After I shall have joined the dead, I shall follow the customs of those people and be guilty of no conduct that can wound any friend. But until that time shall come, I shall be a doubtful quantity like the rest of our race. Very truly yours, S. L. Clemens. The National Mark Twain Association did not surrender easily. Mr. Gatz wrote a second letter full of urgent appeal. If Mark Twain was tempted, we get no hint of it in his answer. To T. F. Gatz of Missouri, New York, June 8, 1903. Dear Mr. Gatz, while I am deeply touched by the desire of my friends of Hannibal to confer these great honors upon me, I must still forbear to accept them. Spontaneous and unpremeditated honors like those which came to me at Hannibal, Columbia, St. Louis, and at the village stations all down the line are beyond all price and are a treasure for life in the memory, for they are a free gift out of the heart, and they come without solicitations. But I am a Missourian, and so I shrink from distinctions which have to be arranged beforehand and with my privity, for I then became a party to my own exultum. I am humanly fond of honors that happen, but chary of those that come by canvas and intention. With sincere thanks to you and your associates for this high compliment which you have been minded to offer me. I am very truly yours, S. L. Clemens. We have seen in the letter to McAllister that Mark Twain's wife had been ordered to Italy and plans were in progress for an establishment there. By the end of June, Mrs. Clemens was able to leave Riverdale, and she made the journey to Quarry Farm, Elmira, where they would remain until October, the month planned for their sailing. The house in Hartford had been sold and a house which, prior to Mrs. Clemens' breakdown, they had bought near Terrytown, expecting to settle permanently on the Hudson, had been let. They were going to Europe for another indefinite period. At Quarry Farm, Mrs. Clemens continued to improve, and Clemens, once more able to work, occupied the study which Mrs. Crane had built for him thirty years before and where Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and the Wandering Prince had been called into being. To Rev. J. H. Twitchell in Hartford, Connecticut. Quarry Farm, Elmira, New York, July 21, 03. Dear Joe, That love letter delighted Livy beyond any like utterance received by her these thirty years and more. I was going to answer it for her right away, and said so. 
but she reserved the privilege to herself. I judge she is accumulating hot stuff, as George Aide would say. Livy is coming along, eats well, sleeps some, is mostly very gay, not very often depressed. Spends all day on the porch, sleeps there a part of the night, makes excursions in carriage and in wheelchair, and in the matter of superintending everything and everybody, has resumed business at the old stand. Did you ever go house-hunting 3,000 miles away? It cost three months of writing and telegraphing to pull off a success. We finished three or four days ago, and took the Villa Papiniano. Damn the name, I have to look at it a minute after writing it, and then am always in doubt. For a year, by cable. Three miles outside of Florence, under Fiesole, a darling location, and apparently a choice house near Fisk. There's seven in our gang, all women but me. It means trunks and things. But thanks be, today, this is private, comes a most handsome voluntary document with seals and escutcheons on it from the Italian ambassador, who is a stranger to me, commanding the customs people to keep their hands off the Clemens things. Now wasn't it lovely of him? And wasn't it lovely of me to let Livy take a pencil and edit my answer and knock a good third of it out? And that's a nice ship, the Irene. New, swift, 13,000 tons, rooms up in the sky, open to sun and air and all that. I was desperately troubled for Livy, about the down-cellar cells in the ancient Latin. The cubs are in Riverdale, yet. They come to us the first week in August. With lots and lots of love to you all, Mark. The arrangement for the Villa Papiniano was not completed, after all, and through a good friend George Gregory Smith, a resident of Florence, the Villa Quarto, an ancient home of royalty on the hills west of Florence, was engaged. Smith wrote that it was a very beautiful place, with a southeastern exposure, looking out toward Vallombrosa and the Chianti Hills. It had extensive grounds and stables, and the annual rental for it all was $2,000 a year. It seemed an ideal place in prospect, and there was great hope that Mrs. Clemens would find her health once more in the Italian climate which she loved. Perhaps at this point, when Mark Twain is once more leaving America, we may offer two letters from strangers to him, letters of appreciation, such as he was constantly receiving from those among the thousands to whom he had given happiness. The first is from Samuel Merwin, one day to become a popular novelist, then in the hour of his beginnings. To Mark Twain from Samuel Merwin Plainfield, New Jersey, August 4, 1903 Dear Mr. Clemens, For a good many years I have been struggling with the temptation to write you and thank you for the work you have done, and today I seem to be yielding. During the past two years I have been reading through a group of writers who seem to me to represent about the best we have. Sir Thomas Mallory, Spencer, Shakespeare, Boswell, Carlyle, Lesage. 
in thinking over one and then another and then all of them together it was plain to see why they were great men and writers each brought to his time some new blood new ideas turned a new current into the stream i suppose there have always been the careful painstaking writers the men who are always taken so seriously by their fellow craftsmen it seems to be the unconventional man who is so rare i mean the honestly unconventional man who has to express himself in his own big way because the conventional way isn't big enough because he needs room and freedom we have a group of the more or less conventional men now men of dignity and literary position but in spite of their influence and of all the work they have done there isn't one of them to whom one can give one's self up without reservation not one whose ideas seem based on the deep foundation of all true philosophy except mark twain i hope this letter is not an impertinence i have just been turning about with my head full of spencer and shakespeare and gil blass looking for something in our own present-day literature to which i could surrender myself as to those five gripping old writings and nothing could i find until i took up life on the mississippi and huckleberry finn and just now the connecticut yankee it isn't the first time i have read any of these three and it's because i know it won't be the last because these books are the only ones written in my lifetime that claim my unreserved interest and admiration and above all my feelings that i've felt i had to write this letter i like to think that tom sawyer and huckleberry finn will be looked upon fifty or a hundred years from now as the picture of buoyant dramatic human american life i feel deep in my own heart pretty sure that they will be they won't be looked on then as the work of a humorist any more than we think of shakespeare as a humorist now i don't mean by this to set up a comparison between mark twain and shakespeare i don't feel competent to do it and i'm not at all sure that it could be done until mark twain's work shall have its fair share of historical perspective but shakespeare was a humorist and so thank heaven is mark twain and shakespeare plunged deep into the deep sad things of life and so in a different way but in a way that has more than once brought tears to my eyes has mark twain but after all it isn't because of any resemblance for anything that was ever before written that mark twain's books strike in so deep it's rather because they've brought something really new into our literature new yet old as adam and eve and the apple and this achievement the achievement of putting something into literature that was not there before is i should think the most that any writer can ever hope to do it is the one mark of distinction between the lonesome little group of big men and the vast herd of medium and small ones anyhow this much i am sure of to the young man who hopes however feebly to accomplish a little something some day as a writer the one inspiring example of our time is mark twain very truly yours samuel merwin mark twain once said he could live a month on a good compliment and from his reply we may believe this one to belong in that class to samuel merwin in plainfield new jersey august sixteen three dear mr merwin what you have said has given me deep pleasure indeed i think no words could be said that could give me more 
Very sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. The next compliment is from one who remains unknown, for she failed to sign her name in full. But it is a lovely letter, and loses nothing by the fact that the writer of it was willing to remain in obscurity. To Mark Twain from Margaret M. Portland, Oregon, August 18, 1903 My dear, dear Mark Twain, May a little girl write and tell you how dearly she loves and admires your writings? Well, I do, and I want to tell you your own self. Don't think me too impertinent, for indeed I don't mean to be that. I have read everything of yours that I could get, and parts that touch me I have read over and over again. They seem such dear friends to me, so like real live human beings, talking and laughing, working and suffering too. One cannot but feel that it is your own life and experience that you have painted. So do not wonder that you seem a dear friend to me who has never even seen you. I often think of you as such in my own thoughts. I wonder if you will laugh when I tell you I have made a hero of you. For when people seem very sordid and mean and stupid, and it seems as if everybody was, then the thought will come like a little crumb of comfort. Well, Mark Twain isn't, anyway. And it does really brighten me up. You see, I have gotten an idea that you are a great, bright spirit of kindness and tenderness, one who can twist everybody's, even your own, faults and absurdities into hearty laughs. Even the person mocked must laugh. Oh, dear, how often you have made me laugh, and yet as often you have struck something infinite away down deep in my heart, so that I want to cry while half laughing. So, this all means that I want to thank you and to tell you. God always love Mark Twain, is often my wish. I dearly love to read books, and I never tire of reading yours. They always have a charm for me. Goodbye. I am afraid I have not expressed what I feel, but at least I have tried. Sincerely yours, Margaret M. Clemens and family left Elmira October the 5th for New York City. They remained at the Hotel Grovner until their sailing date, October 24th. A few days earlier, Mr. Frank Doubleday sent a volume of Kipling's poems and de Blowitz's memoirs for entertainment on the ship. Mark Twain's acknowledgment follows. To F. N. Doubleday in New York, the Grovner, October twelfth, Alt three. Dear Doubleday, the books came. Ever so many thanks. I have been reading the Bell Boy and the Old Man over and over again, my custom with Kipling's work, and saving up the rest for other leisurely and luxurious meals. The bellboy is a deeply impressive fellow-being. In these many recent trips up and down the Sound in the Kanawha, Footnote Mr. Rogers' Yacht End of footnote He has talked to me nightly, sometimes in his pathetic and melancholy way, sometimes with his strenuous and urgent note, and I got his meaning. Now I have his words. 
no one but Kipling could do this strong and vivid thing. Some day I hope to hear the poem chanted or sung, with the bellboy breaking in out of the distance. The old men. Delicious, isn't it? And so comically true. I haven't arrived there yet, but I suppose I am on the way. Yours ever, Mark. P.S. Your letter has arrived. It makes me proud and glad what Kipling says. I hope fate will fetch him to Florence while we are there. I would rather see him than any other man. We've let the Terrytown house for a year. Man, you would never have believed a person could let a house in these times. That one's for sale. The Hartford one is sold. When we buy again, may we, may I, be damned. I've dipped into Blowitz and find him quaintly and curiously interesting. I think he tells the straight truth, too. I knew him a little, twenty-three years ago. The appreciative word which Kipling had sent Doubleday was, I love to think of the great and godlike Clemens. He is the biggest man you have on your side of the water by a damn sight, and don't you forget it. Cervantes was a relation of his. End of section 44. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.